Well, let me invite you to take your Bible with me. We're in Genesis chapter 30, and our text for this morning is verses 25 through chapter 31, verse 3. Genesis 25 through 31, verse 3. And uh, I know Josh mentioned it during the announcements. My, I'm on the screen here. It's a little odd looking at myself. Um, again, this is a, an interim phase. We're, we're not trying to do this. Uh, hopefully, we'll get the kinks worked out in the software, and we, we won't have to look at that. <laughs> All right. Oh, thank you. You turned the back one off, so I'm not distracted by myself. All right. <laughs> Okay, let's, uh, let's take the word together. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 30, verse 25 and following. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I've found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed me, blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be considered counted stolen. Laban said, Good. Let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were spot, striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob had heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is God's word. I trust that you are grateful that we get to open the book of God's word and feed on it this morning. I need help. From the Holy Spirit, you do too, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, with your word laying open before us, we need something supernatural to happen in this room. We need your spirit to illumine this word to us and, and cause it to do that which you have determined it to do, to sanctify us. And for some who are as yet unbelieving, to make them wise to your salvation. Father, there's no way a man can accomplish that. We acknowledge that it is the work of your spirit to preach some sermon that is above and beyond the words of a mere man. So we pray that that would happen this morning. But all the while, Father, would you cause me as a proclaimer to be faithful to this truth? And would you give us all that expectancy of mind and heart to hear from you, to be changed 
by you in order that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would be glorified among us and through us. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Just remembering back to, uh, to my children's viewing habits and the things that they'd like to watch, I, I recall that one of my daughter's favorite movies was, when she was younger, was Princess Diaries. Uh, and it's a compelling storyline. And in fact, I enjoyed watching it with her. And it's not, of course, not unlike many other rags to riches, pauper to prince stories, and maybe Cinderella or Jane Eyre being others like that. But when you think of these characters, what accounts for the, for the change in their station as either character or determination, endurance certainly, but sometimes just luck. Now our Bible story is sort of a, a rags to riches story, but there is a reason for Jacob's fortunes. And it's not luck, it's not even character. Rather, it has everything to do with God's promise. Now, this story is, of course, part of a larger narrative of how God set apart a people unto himself. He had determined to bless them and to make them into a great nation. He set them apart in order to demonstrate his grace to all of the rest of creation. So from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God has been steadily unfolding his plan to bring people back to what was lost when he squandered Eden. God is determined to bring them back. And so as the Israelites, as a people, are on the precipice of, of now possessing that land of promise, this story, among the rest of the, the narrative of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, among that whole section of the Bible, this narrative serves really as a reminder. In particular, this story serves as a reminder of the unexpected way that God works. I'll summarize it using the Apostle Paul's words from the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This story is doing that, reminding us that no human being boasts in the presence of God. Now back to our story. When Jacob arrived in Paddan Aram, and, and you'll recall, if you've been tracking with us through Genesis, he was in Paddan Aram, in Haran, east of the land of Canaan. He had been sent by his father Isaac to get a wife. He ended up with two, plus two more concubines. And now we're at the place in the story where he now has 11 sons and at least one daughter that we know about. But really, he still has, at the beginning of this, he still has nothing of his own. Jacob is part of Laban's household. That's Rachel and Leah's father. He's really part of Laban's extended household. And this passage of scripture is really where that story takes a turn. Now, as we consider together this morning, Jacob's rags to riches story, I, I want us to consider this text and, and make some application, of course, for our own lives today. And I want to do that under, under three headings. And, and I'll unpack how this all makes sense a little later. But the first heading is righteous desire. Second, I want to look at the idea of acting on God's promise. And third, God's economy of blessing. Probably not a phrase you've heard. <laughs> uh, righteous desire, acting on God's promise, and God's economy of blessing. Well, first... So we look at the text this morning, a righteous desire. Now, when I get up in the morning, I know uh, there, there are some things I really want, and maybe you can identify this. I want a cup of coffee. That's how I want to start my day. I want a hot shower. I want something to eat. And then I spend the rest of my day pursuing things that I want to do, either because they are obligations, taking out the trash on Wednesday, or because they're joyful responsibilities that I have embraced, like studying my Bible and and preparing to preach or, or meet with staff and, and hopefully have pastoral visits with some of you and, and spend time with my wife and children and, and grandchildren. 
Of course, there, there are also things in my life that are not routine. And as uh, some of you know, a week before last, Kathy and I went to Florida to visit with her brother's family. We had a nice time. Um, now, I wanted to fly to Fort Myers. I wanted to be there. I wanted us to be there at 8.15 in the evening. That's what Delta's flight schedule said. Um, but we spent an extra hours in New York City in Newark. And let me just say this as a casual advice here. If you can at all avoid spending a night in LaGuardia, do that. Avoid it. Not pleasant. I wanted to get there Saturday night, but as it turned out, we had to find an alternate flight out of New Jersey. I wanted, but I didn't get. Now, when I think about the things that I want, are they righteous or unrighteous? So when I think about what I want, is it good or bad? Studying the Bible, that's certainly righteous. Of course, taking care uh, to spend time with my family, that's, that's good. Cup of coffee, a shower, vacation, stress-free travel. I suppose those things depend, right? I want us to think together about what we desire. We're always thinking about what we want, aren't we? Doesn't it over off our minds. Now, looking at our text, what did, what did Jacob want? Was it a righteous desire? And indeed, how can we know if it was a righteous desire? Look at verse 25 of chapter 30. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home, home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Here, Jacob simply wants his freedom from Laban, and he wants to be the head of his own household in Canaan. Canaan was the land that he was promised to possess, and that promise was to Abraham and passed down to Isaac, and now Jacob understands where he fits in this. He wants to go there. But what would, it, what would he have to bring with him as he goes to Canaan? Again, he came to Laban with nothing. He has worked for Laban for 14 years. He worked for Rachel. He worked for Leah. But at this point, he's effectively an employee. He asks Laban, verse 30, But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? Now, as we think about this, was this a righteous desire? Now, look back at verse, uh, sorry, not verse, chapter 28. On his way to Padanaram, on his way to Haran, this is 14 years prior. Again, he was sent there by Isaac to find a wife from among his relatives. And on the way there, where he is now, on the way, the Lord met Jacob in a dream. And this is the promise that he heard. A promise not unlike the promise to Abraham and to his father Isaac. Genesis 28, 14 and 15. The Lord said, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now Jacob's desires to be the head of his own household, to return to his country. These are, these are desires certainly common to man. But those desires were also informed by God's promises. So we can conclude they were righteous desires. It was a righteous desire because it was based on what God had revealed to him. God spoke specifically, I will bring you back. So him wanting to go back is certainly righteous. Now, looking at our own lives. How can you know if what you want is according to God's will? And I think we all know this, right? God is silent in his word about many specific things that we might desire. The Bible doesn't say anything about specifically whom you should marry. The Bible doesn't specifically say anything about your education or career. The Bible doesn't specifically say anything about the place you would live, the home you might buy, any major purpose, purchase you might make, the investments and the like. You get it, right? Now, the Deuteronomic law, this is Deuteronomy 12, in specifically 12 through 18 in, in Deuteronomy. There, it, it certainly acknowledges that there were normal temporal desires that, that people have, these are God-given. The desire to, to celebrate and feast on, on meat and wine, and as it says in the text, strong drink. Or the desire 
specifically for a beautiful woman as a wife from among the captives. But the Lord also put boundaries on those desires. Gluttony and drunkenness were, of course, forbidden. In the food, there was to be a share for the Levite. And it was to be understood that covenant marriage was the context for, for satisfying sexual desire. So, those things understood, common desires. The Lord put boundaries on them. Now, of course, the law, we also understand the law is clear that some desires are clearly unrighteous, right? To covet, to covet what your neighbor has, whether that's his house, his wife, his servant, his ox or donkey, Exodus 20, 17, the last of the Ten Commandments, that is forbidden. Now, that unholy desires even exist? That's a problem, of course, common to man. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We experience these all the time. And, of course, the reason for that goes back to our first parents. The Lord told, if you recall the story in the garden, the Lord told Adam and Eve not to eat. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they looked at that tree, and they saw that it was beautiful. They saw that it was Good for food. It delighted their eyes, of course. It was beautiful. And it was able to make them wise. They desired it. And they took it. And from that point forward, desire became corrupted. Since then, of course, we all have been, we all are now, faced with a choice between righteous and unrighteous desires. We're always faced with those choices, aren't we? Now, like I said, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We are all tempted with unrighteous desires. And some of those desires are clearly prohibited in a civilized, if ungodly society, right? So murder, theft, fraud, those are illegal. So our society prohibits those things. But of course, we know that God is a, is a higher uh, standard than our society, right? And the way that you know what is unrighteous is, of course, if God's word forbids it, clearly. So that's not the hard part. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness. Those things are clear and easy to understand. But, but how about the things that are not clearly stated? How do we know if a desire is unrighteous? Well, you determine this by examining where an undesire, or sorry, an unrighteous desire leads. And this is what James says in his letter about the matter. James 1, 14 and 15, he says this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, James is not talking about all desire, because there are righteous desires. But what James is talking about is the desire that is the result of corruption. So, there may be an unrighteous desire behind an otherwise innocuous desire. You get what I'm saying? An unrighteous motivation be behind an otherwise innocent longing. Desire. Even a seemingly innocent one could be fueled by lust, greed, or pride. Unrighteous desire feeds the selfish and unrestrained appetite. Example, if you, you have a wife, but you pursue another in your mind, or even by action. Or an attitude in your heart, one of hoarding. You want stuff and money. Because you just like to have big piles of stuff and money. Greed. Or the need somehow to elevate self over others. And so you talk yourself up and you seek to bring others down. Those things could, could, could corrupt otherwise innocent and neutral desires. So I think the question that we certainly want to answer is then, how do you make sure that your desires are righteous? So here's a simple remedy for the one who is trusting in God's promise. And that's the, the key here, right? 
It's the remedy for those who trust in God's promises. And here's what Psalm 37, 4 says. And perhaps some of you have memorized this. It's a, a beautiful verse. It says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a great comfort. And it's a great corrective for the things that we might desire. Now, there are at least two ways to interpret this. Delighting in the Lord informs what you desire. So if your focus is on the Lord, he causes you to desire what is good and pure and right. Or, the other way of looking at it, delighting in the Lord, he then gives you what you want. But I would say this. You wouldn't want something that God opposes if you truly delight in the Lord. So either way, you end up in the same place. Righteous desire. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. Now, Jacob's desire back in our text was, was righteous because it was based on God's promise to him. It was clear. God said, this is what I'm going to do for you. And so he longed for that. And your desires are righteous if they are about delighting in what God has already declared in his word. There's great comfort in that. It's a righteous desire if God's word says this is right and good. So the desire to love God, heart, soul, and mind. If you, if you examine your own heart and you say, God, I want to love you more. God says, that's a righteous desire. If you want your desire to love your neighbor as yourself, if you see a deficiency in you in terms of showing love to others, wanting that more, that's a righteous desire. The desire to flee youthful lusts, the desire to put on the character of Christ, the word of God is clear about these things. The desire to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, to have these evident in your character, a righteous desire. The desire to steward well what God has given you so that you glorify him. When you submit every other temporal and neutral desire, whether that's for food or shelter or work or relationships or leisure, when you submit those desires to the things that are clearly stated in the scripture with an overarching desire to delight in the Lord, hear me, you cannot go wrong. Righteous desire. Jacob had a righteous desire. The Word of God tells us how we can ensure that our desires are righteous. Second, acting on God's promise. Now imagine uh, with me a scenario. Imagine you attend a wedding ceremony. You arrive and you receive the invitation and you're there and the service goes on. The couple makes their vows. Then, of course, after the dinner and speeches and some Rick Astley and time warp and chicken dance and what have you, cake cutting... I'm not endorsing any of those songs, by the way, so Paul, do not play them at the end. Chicken dance, probably safe. But we don't really want to hear that, frankly, do we? Whatever. <laughs> now, imagine after all of that, the couple then goes their separate ways. And they carry on their separate lives. Now, that's absurd, right? That's just silly. After the promises made, you rightly expect that things will change dramatically for the couple. Husband and wife are going to act on the promises made, to love and cherish for better, for worse, till death parts them. That action involves a shared home, shared priorities, shared bed, obvious stuff, right? Expect that. Expect them to act on the promises made. Now, the Lord had made a promise to Jacob to prosper him. He was obligated to work for Laban for 14 years for his wives. Now, here with the birth of Joseph... That obligation is complete, and now in his mind, it's time to act. Now, Laban knows, and he says this, he discovers it by divination, that it was the Lord that enriched him because of Jacob. So Laban's got a sense, I'm prospering here. Jacob, Jacob's presence in my household, this has been good for me. He knows that. And I take it, Laban, by his own actions, he doesn't want to lose Jacob. And so when Jacob says he wants to leave, Laban makes the first move, and he tells Jacob, state your wages. Now, Jacob knows what he wants. He knows what he wants. But he wants it to be clear to Laban that whatever he receives is not because of Laban giving it to him. Right? It's not a gift. Laban said, look at this, verse 31, what shall I give you? 
Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Now, we might pause here and say, why does this matter? Jacob knows that Laban is a schemer. He was tricked into marrying Leah, right? That's a constant reminder of the trickery of Laban. Of course, Jacob himself was a schemer to get where he is. But setting that aside, he understands what Laban is like. So Jacob, what Jacob does is he chooses as his wages those rarer animals of the future flocks. So we're told in the text, only the black sheep and only the goats that were speckled and spotted. Now understand that these were not typical. It would be a very small minority of the flocks that would have this appearance, and so they were rare. Now Laban's knowledge of his own flocks confirms this, and he quickly agrees. And what he then does is he separates all of those who fit that description. He separates them. Now Laban obviously thought, at least this is obvious to me, I think he thought that the rarity of these animals would very much limit Jacob in some way. <laughs> there won't be many of those. Cool. Right? Now, to ensure that there would be absolutely no interbreeding, Laban then puts these matching, these unusual sheep and goats matching this description, he puts them in the charge of his own sons and sets three days' journey between them and the rest of his flock that he leaves with Jacob. So then Jacob would then take his wages as only the rarer black sheep and the spotted and speckled goats that were bred from among those who did not have that characteristic. So as you can see, it looks like the deck is stacked against Jacob. But it wasn't. Jacob had a confidence here in the Lord, I think. Deck was not stacked against Jacob because God was working. Now, once the separation is complete, Jacob went to work building his wealth. Now, verses 37 through 42, as we read it together, you might have thought, what kind of animal husbandry is this? It's an odd kind of description. But whatever Jacob did, he, he tried to ensure that his breeding process pr produced just the offspring among the sheep and goats that he wanted. Now, so much has been written about this in the scholarly uh, journals and, and the Bible commentaries about how these fresh sticks from different trees with peeled park, uh, uh, bark peeled back, set in front or in the watering trough, would or would not accomplish what Jacob intended. And we look at that and maybe, maybe people who tend sheep today go, what is that? No one has really offered an explanation that makes sense to me as to how flocks would breed in front of sticks that would specifically uh, produce rarer offspring. It, it doesn't make any sense. Now, some put it in the category of superstition in the same way that, if you remember in the previous section, Rachel was depending on mandrakes to, to provide some uh, added fertility, a superstitious idea, or perhaps just common knowledge in the day. But what's important is the fact that Jacob acted. He acted according to what he knew. So we can question what he knew, but he acted according to what he knew. He acted on the basis of God's promise. And I take it, I take it that we are to conclude that it was the Lord. It was the Lord who prospered him. Verse 43 in our text says, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. I want you to note this. Because Jacob was confident in God's promise to him, he was confident that he would succeed in that which was God's will. He was confident in God's promise. Therefore, he was confident that he would succeed in that which was God's will. Now, as we think to apply this, we're not given the same promise of prosperity. Don't take that. God's promise, of course, to Jacob was very unique in that the Lord was fulfilling his promise to set apart an entire people group that people group would serve as a witness to his own grace, God's grace in the world, but ultimately to usher in the anointed one who would deliver ultimately that grace. And we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, today, we who have believed the promises of God, we are recipients of that grace 
in Christ, the Son of God. He has brought us near to God through his own self-sacrifice at the cross. And I hope you see, compared to Jacob, land wealth. This is a better reward. I hope you see that. Now, I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says. He writes this to Titus in chapter 2. Again, we're speaking about the grace that's been ultimately revealed through this nation, right? So we're recipients of that grace. So we have a promise from God in the scriptures of grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in him today, he's made you aware of your sin. He's brought your heart to the place of repentance for that sin. He's awakened you to the fact that Jesus in his death on the cross fully pays for that sin. And in rising again in your trust in what Christ has accomplished, you have the guarantee of eternal life and fellowship with him forever. That's the promise of God. So here's what the Apostle Paul says about this grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus 2.11. Again, that grace is that the eternal Son of God became a man. He lived that sinless life. He died vicariously, that is to say, in your stead, and he rose from the grave. And he guarantees eternal life for all who trust him. Now let me ask you, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it? And so then what does this grace do? Yes, salvation. It brings salvation, but it does more. That grace empowers us to act. It empowers us to act on the promise of eternal life in Christ. And here's how I get there. Titus 2 continues. The grace of God appeared, right? Bringing salvation for all people. Continuing verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I hope you see the beauty of that. God pours out his grace to awaken us to sin and the need for forgiveness of that sin, to awaken us to eternal life in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that same grace, that same grace teaches, it trains, it empowers us to live in a way that honors God. It trains us to renounce all that is evil and instead be self-controlled and godly. It trains us. It empowers us. Now, I want you to see in that verse, the verbs renounce, live. That implies action on your part. But that action is grace-fueled. It's grace-fueled action. It's empowered by God, right? But there's still action. Renounce, live. This is what Peter said in his letter, along the same idea. God has granted to us all things, that pertain to life and godliness. Our need for life and godliness, God has granted to us all things. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you confident in God's promise to you? And if you are, let me ask you the follow-up question. Are you confident that you will succeed in that which is God's will for you in your life? The two go together. If you're confident in God's promise, and I'm not saying that you can, you can guarantee perfection here. I'm not saying that. We all stumble and fall. But because and if you are confident in the promises of God, you should be on a trajectory of growth. You should be leaving behind sin. You should be embracing a life that renounces ungodly passions. You should be on a trajectory that embraces in increasing measure obedience and joy in the things that God calls us to. God's promises are not passive. 
They're not passive. They're not powerless. So you should not be passive in response. So let me exhort you. Take the grace-empowered steps to honor God in all that you do as you live with his promises in view. Another verse, just to back this up. Hear what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian believers. Therefore, my beloved, this is Philippians chapter 2. Again, I, I, I often go back to verses memorized. So maybe some of you have memorized this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the exhortation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't stop there, though. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work, because God is working. God is working, therefore work. Therefore renounce, therefore live. Let me paraphrase that. Act on God's promise with awe and reverence for the Lord, because God is working in you what is pleasing to him. One more way of thinking about this from Romans. One more way. After 11 chapters, if you've read through Romans, it's glorious. 11 chapters of, of a thorough and glorious explanation of the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's appeal by the mercies of God is the promise of God in Christ summarized. The mercies of God. He's just summarizing 11 chapters. But note the direct verb phrase, right? The directing verb phrase, empowering us and exhorting us to act. Present your body as a living sacrifice. You lay your whole self before God so that you are not imitating what the rest of the world does. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to be transformed. Well, that's not something you can do for yourself. Be transformed is passive. But it happens to you when your mind is renewed. But that's also passive. But that mind renewal happens when you immerse yourself in the promises of God, when you keep the promises of God in view. It's mind renewing. And that immersive experience in the promises of God gives you the, 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 the power. It allows you to pass the test of living in an ungodly world so that you can learn to discern what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God going forward? Brothers and sisters, be confident of your continued growth in grace as you act on the promise of God in Christ. When you focus on Jesus, you will succeed in the thing that God is calling you to do. All right, third, God's economy, a blessing. I was thinking about how to illustrate uh, this, but go with me on this. might be a little weird. <laughs> but there are some uh, macroeconomists who hold to what is called a zero-sum theory. And this tends to be the thinking behind socialistic economic policies. And so if someone gets richer, that must mean that, that wealth is at the expense of another group. Socialist policies seek to rectify that through taxation and redistribution of wealth. But I think what is proven to be true over time, at least in this country, is that aphorism, the rising tide lifts all boats, meaning that an environment that facilitates prosperity of one will spill over to others. Now, the reason I say this is because as I was thinking about the economic system going on with Laban and Jacob, it, it, they experienced prosperity in different ways. At the beginning of our story, it looked like J, uh, Laban's boat was lifted by the rising tide of, of Jacob's prosperity. But Jacob didn't prosper. But at the end, 
his want, Laban's lack, looked like a, a sort of a zero-sum system of the Lord's blessing. Now, the point I'm making here is that God has an economy for blessing. And it has nothing to do with supply and demand. It's not trickle-down. It is not zero-sum. God blesses and curses based on his own formula. And we see that formula at work here. And it rests on the promise that God initially made to Abraham, passed to Isaac, now to Jacob. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, understand, we're not talking merely about economic prosperity. Okay? There's a bigger picture of God's blessing here. But the, the illustration is one of economic between Jacob and Laban. So Laban had claimed to learn by divination that, Jacob, that he had prospered because of Jacob. Laban understood that. Now, I just want to be clear here. Even though Laban found out this truth, that he was blessed by the Lord on account of Jacob, or that his, Jacob's blessing effectively spilled over to Laban, found that out through divination. Any seeking, okay, here's one of the things that is described in the text, but not prescribed, do not do this. Any seeking of spiritual knowledge apart from direct revelation of the Lord and his word is a grievous sin before the Lord, and that is akin to idolatry. So do not think by divination you can find out the will of God. Trust the book. That's just an aside. But Jacob also understood. Jacob also understood that the Lord had blessed Laban because of him. And this is the substance, really, of his rebuke to Laban in verse 29. You yourself know that I've served you and how your livestock fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. After Jacob had worked for Laban another six years, the fact of Jacob's prosperity became apparent even to Laban's sons, Chapter 31 at the beginning, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Of course, this becomes the, the point of contention between Jacob and the sons of Laban. We'll deal with that next week. So Jacob, uh, sorry, Laban's sons thought that Jacob had taken away his wealth. Laban's sons thought that Jacob had effectively pilfered it. But what is clear is that God took it away from Laban. And this reveals the economy of God's blessing. The substance of the Lord's blessing upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that he blesses those whom he chooses as his own. That's the Lord's doing. And those who curse, the ones who trust in God's promise, are likewise the ones that have no regard for God's promise and therefore are cursed. Now Laban really enjoyed that material blessing that Jacob's presence provided, but he cared little about God's eternal promises. Laban was outside of the covenant family. And this was proven by the fact that he treated Jacob badly. He schemed against him. Now, what are we to make of this? The Lord makes a distinction between his elect, his own people, and the rest of the world. The Lord makes a distinction. Jesus illustrated this fact in the parable of the talents. I'll summarize the story. A master was going away on a journey. He entrusted his servants with some of his wealth. There are two faithful servants. They used what they had been entrusted with to please their master. And on the master's return, the master was pleased and multiplied their blessing. A third servant, described as unfaithful and wicked, he buried his master's goods. Really what he proved was that he cared little about his master's business. And in the end, he was cast out. What he had was taken away from him. And Jesus summarized that truth in terms of God's economy of blessing with this simple statement. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jacob embraced 
the Lord's promise. Again, Laban had no concern for the Lord. So the Lord took away what he had and gave it to Jacob. But Jacob had to wait, didn't he? He had to wait 20 years. 14 years he worked. We find it out in the next section. Six more years he worked for uh, Laban's flocks. He worked for his wives and he worked for his flocks. He had to wait, but the Lord enriched him. That's the Lord's economy of blessing. It's not zero sum and it's not the rising tide. God directly blesses his own and he curses those who curse his own. Now, how does that apply to us today? It's true. If you have trusted in the promises of God, if, if you've trusted in Christ, you are blessed. Ephesians 1, and Phil prayed this this morning in the pastoral prayer. Ephesians 1 says that you are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, though we do not fully access these blessings, right? They are assigned to all who are in Christ. And these blessings will be fully enjoyed when Christ returns. Count on that. They are marked for you who are in Christ. Laban prospered because of Jacob, and for a while, Jacob had nothing. And that is the experience, isn't it, of believers today? Sometimes we watch the world prospering around us. So I don't think any of us can really say that we're too hard. Well, maybe some in the room. I don't want to gloss over financial difficulties. But living in this part of the world, we enjoy a material wealth. But again, we're not just talking, we're not talking about material wealth. The whole, the whole earth will be ours to enjoy in Christ in eternity. The Lord Jesus will return and, and, and it will be taken away from the kingdoms of this world. And it will be transferred to Jesus' full domain. He owns it all. But one day, the whole creation will recognize by bowing before them, before him, saying, Jesus, you are Lord. But that's not yet. So we wait. Jesus said this. He confirmed it. So, you may be suffering now, maybe not financially, but in weakness from the battle against sin. You may be suffering under disease and persecutions from others, and that's not the end of the story. See, if you have set your eternal hope on Christ, this is what Jesus says. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, like if you sacrificed everything in this life, everyone who has set aside these things for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So while you wait, while you wait for your eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ, what do we do? Spend your life living by God's promise in Christ, knowing that one day the Lord will set it right. The world that curses Christ and curses you because you belong to him will one day be cursed by God. That's for all who do not bow the knee to Jesus. It's not our job to be cursing anyone. Let me make that clear. But one day, God will set it right. So the instruction here isn't if someone curses you, curse them back, or even declare to them God's curse in their lives. Right? So we don't know who the Lord's chosen, right? So between now and then, we're just holding out the promise. Bow the knee to Jesus, who's king. He owns it all. And when he returns, you too will get your glorious inheritance with him. But while we wait for that eternal inheritance, we've got to spend our lives living by the promise of God in Christ, knowing that the Lord will set it right. Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If you've come to faith in Christ, if you've come to trust him for what he has done for you, 
if you understand that the Lord Jesus is the divine Son of God, if you see that He lived from the pages of Scripture revealing this, if you understand and know that He lived this sinless, perfect life before man and before God, if you understand that, if you get the truth of the story that He was crucified and that His death was not just an accident of history, but a divine judgment not on Him, but on your sin. If you get that He did that for you, if you understand and believe that after Jesus was buried in the tomb, he rose on the third day. If you know in your heart that God raised him from the dead and, and that Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, if you know that to be true, it is true that God has taken you from the rags of sin and despair and condemnation and he's brought you into the riches of his mercy and grace. So here's what you do, brothers and sisters. Here's what we do. Examine all your desires and see if they have God's promises in view. Second, spend your energies in acting on the truth of God's word and have confidence, confidence that you, by his grace, will succeed in all that he calls you to do. And know this, while we feel this, this measure of suffering and things aren't quite complete, while we suffer, know that in due time you will receive your eternal reward. That eternal reward, that unalloyed, undiminished, and pure fellowship with Christ forever. Brothers and sisters, he has taken us from rags to experience the full riches of the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the promises that you make through Jesus, your son, that we can be forgiven. Father, I pray for all of us that we would live in this world seeking to and the things that we long for and the things that we do every day, Lord, that our desires would be ones that are informed by your promises. God, secondly, that we, would, that we would be bold to act on the truth of your word. And third, Father, that you would give us patience while we wait for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, before whom every knee will bow, before whom every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Alter your glory, Father. Pray in Christ's name.